And then uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open, and then we'll uh, open to 1 Peter, and then we'll begin with a word of prayer. But 1 Peter, we'll pick it up in the end of chapter 4, but focus on chapter 5. And basically what's happening is we've been in 1 Peter. We're nearing the end of it. We have a couple special Sundays coming up over the next several weeks, and the idea would be at the end of August, we're finished with 1 Peter um, before we launch into the fall. And it's been an amazing study just for me to realize that over, over and over the theme in this book is, is to, to arm yourself to suffer for doing good. To arm yourself to suffer for doing good. And that's the fascinating thing about it is, is that we would all say, sure, that's a good thing to suffer for doing good. Sign me up. I want to be a virtuous person. I want to be a spiritual person. Um, suffer for doing good, yeah. But it's, it always catches you off guard when you suffer. And we react and we respond instinctively and we don't always bear up under unjust suffering or we're not often willing to deal well with suffering for doing good. And what I've learned just as we've been going through First Peter, and I, I hope you're still reading it on a regular basis during the week, what I've realized is if, if you don't get up in the morning and get on your knees and basically plead with God and say, give me the fortitude and the ability and the maturity and the wisdom um, to be able to react and respond well when I suffer and as I suffer, it just doesn't happen. It's one of those things you just kind of have to be on guard for. And if, if we don't entertain that dialogue with ourselves and with God on a regular basis and just equip ourselves and arm ourselves to suffer well, we just don't. And so that's kind of the, the one reoccurring thought that's come to me as I've studied this. And we're going to begin at the end of chapter 4, reading again about suffering for doing good. And then we're going to go into chapter 5. But let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we just would commit this morning to you. Uh, we, uh, we do not have life figured out, and you obviously have, have thoughts and ideas that are so, so much further and higher and better than ours, and we want to submit to that. We want to live well. We want to bring you glory. We want to honor you. We want to have the satisfaction of being in your will. So, Father, I just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would be a part of what we do, that you would never leave this church, that you would discipline us if we needed to before you would walk away from this church and turn your back on it. Father, we just want to know you and we want to serve you. In Christ's name, amen. So we'll pick it up uh, in verse 12 of chapter 4 and just kind of get the flow again. And it says this in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering. These people are enduring persecution. They're, they're outcasts. They stick out like a sore thumb. And, and don't be surprised by that. As though something strange were happening to you. Remember, in the early parts of this book, the whole idea was that we're strangers on this earth. We, we're sojourning here. This isn't our natural home or, or where our citizenship lies. That's in heaven. We're getting ready for that. And so, it's not something strange that's happening to you. But... Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory 
and of God rests on you. It's a really fascinating thing. Let me just stop briefly. The church at Antioch in the book of Acts is the first time that the word Christian is used of the followers of Jesus Christ. In that area of Antioch, it was just kind of like a cultural thing. They would always nickname the followers of somebody by that person's name. And so there's Jesus Christ, so these people are Christians. It wasn't like a positive name. It was just kind of a slang nickname, partially negative. They did it with other Roman generals and things like that. It was just kind of a common thing to that area, and then that's what stuck and kind of followed on. And here's the fascinating thing of my generation. My generation, I think, is the hybrid between what was a Christian nation or a Christian culture in some sense and what is a post-Christian nation. And we're, like, struggling with that because when you're little kids, like, Christian gets thrown around and you shrug your shoulders, no big deal. That person's a Christian, that person's a Christian. Well, that person goes to church. Well, of course, no big deal. And... In my generation, all of a sudden, it becomes a little more awkward and a little bit more sticky and a little bit more less cool. And so you walk around Bend, and I go to church, or I'm a Christian, and immediately you want to qualify. But but I'm not like those guys on the TV, and I'm not like those people that go to that church, and I'm not weird this way, and I'm not weird that way. You know, I'm I'm, I'm an okay person. (laughs) Please don't think weird of me. Like we have such, my generation has such a hard time embracing the idea of, of just, I'm a Christian because of all the baggage that goes with it and we, we're just deathly afraid of being typecasted into something. That's our dominant concern in life when we talk about Christianity. We don't go into a conversation and say, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. Um, and man, I just can't give enough. Every day I get up and I wrestle and I realize there's more I could give to the cause of Christ. I don't love the church enough the way God loves the church, the bride of Christ. And, you know, I'm really wrestling through and praying through what God has, has made me for. He's made me for a mission and a purpose in this world. And, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, man, I wrestle with that all the time. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. And, yeah, I go to this church. And, you know, we're not perfect. Nobody is. But, man, I wouldn't give it up for the world. And, hey, where are you at with your faith? You know, where are you at religiously or spiritually? Like, that's not where my generation's at. We say, you know, <clears throat> I'm a Christian. But, 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 don't think ill of me. I mean, these things are a bigger part of our life than I think we realize. We, we go into Scripture and we, we read over these things and we're, we're just like, wow, what does that really have to do with me? But if we really stand outside of ourselves and walk circumspectly and look back at ourselves, you know, we're, we're caught up in so many cultural games of our day and age. 30 years from now, if we looked back, we'd be able to spot it so easily, so clearly. Because, you know, history does that. You look back and you see the cultural mistakes of previous generations. But we're immersed in it and we don't see our own. So I just find that fascinating. It's a bigger deal than we realize. It's okay to be insulted. The focus should be on honoring Christ, not vindicating ourselves. It should be lifting up Christ, who is our Lord, honoring God, glorifying God, not trying to preserve our image. Okay, and if you suffer, it should be not as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. I mean, those people are obviously going to suffer, right? They're out of step. They're out of tune. Um, that's not suffering for Christ. If you're going to suffer for Christ, 
You should do it as one who's called a Christian. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Wear it with honor. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it, if it begins with us, what will, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I've got a comment to make there, but I want to catch it in the context of where we're going to focus, and that's his word to elders. So he's, he's just imploring the Christian community to be structured a certain way and to, to, to be mature in a certain way. And then as he's beginning to close down his book here, or his writing, or his letter, Peter turns his attention to the leaders. Because if they lead well, that's going to be, more than anything else maybe, the indicator of how this community can function. And so he turns his attention to the elders and says this, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Here's what I want you to do. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Now, what does that mean? Uh, here's what I think it means. It, it's a calling, it's a role, it's a job that doesn't have a, a lot going for it. So the Christian community is suffering persecution. And some of you are going to be put out in front of that community. Guess where you're going to be? You're the, you're the point. This, this, the point on the spear. You're, you're right at the front edge of where probably the most intense suffering is going to be. So I remember watching um, those movies. You know those great epic battles where you got thousands of people here and thousands of people there. And then they run at each other and just like clash and, and whatnot. Here's what I used to think when I watched those movies. Like they're running, these guys are running, and there's like a bunch of guys that are like faster than the other guys, and they're kind of out in front a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? I used to always think those guys were stupid. You know, they're jocks, <laughs> um, and they're not that smart. I'm a lot smarter than those guys. I would have run a little bit slower and I would have gotten there right after that first clash, and I would have been in a much better position to, like, you know, save my neck um, because I'm smart. I think that's human, in, human nature, isn't it? I want to be one step back from that front line because that guy, um, he doesn't stand a chance. You know, when the firing opens up, he's the one that's going to get shot right off the bat. And the Civil War is amazing statistics uh, about the, the flag bearers. The guys holding the colors, the regimental colors, how long their life expectancy was when the fighting started, when the shooting started. Did you ever see that movie Glory? Matthew Broderick and uh, Denzel Washington. It's amazing. It gets to this end and there's a guy that's kind of against his will, been a part of this whole thing. And then he builds a relationship with the, the lead guy. And so at the end, in this last final battle, he sees the leader take up the flag, trying to rally his troops and get shot. And this guy that's kind of always been against his you know, will, he didn't want to be a part of it. He was just there, right? 
duty. He had no desire to be there. All of a sudden, he picks up the flag and starts charging the hill. And it, there's like this music going, and your hair's up on your arms, and you, it's the coolest scene ever. To those of you that are shepherds, there's a flock that belongs to God that's under your care. And God wants you to be out front serving and looking over those people, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Let me put this into real terms. Like, there's a lot of you out there. Uh, this passage is kind of funny. really speaks, I think, to, to, to godly biblical leadership. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you own your own company and you have employees, if you're coaching a little league team, I think leadership is leadership is leadership, and it's talking about some core leadership principles here, okay? But this one that has to do with the church basically speaks to this idea. There's a lot of guys that have the capacity to do amazing things for the flock of God right here. Let's just talk about Antioch. And it's easy to hide. It's easy to sit back. It's easy to not give that time. It's easy to let somebody else do it. It's easy, if you're going to get pulled in, to go only a few steps forward just so that the attention is off of you, and then you can get back to the golf course. Your friends are waiting for you out there. They have hobbies they want you to do with them. They're not going to understand if you're given that time to your church If you're a Fortune 500 CEO, they're not going to understand why you'd be leading and investing yourself into such a small group of people that really doesn't make any money. It's hard when you have to make decisions to to get involved in sticky relational things or, or sticky big decisions that don't have easy answers. And it's so much easier to let somebody else do that and they're going to take the heat. It's easier not to get into a situation where you're on the front and then when you come into a a conflict with the city or a category or a demographic within the city that takes aim at this church because we're Christians and now all of a sudden you're caught up in that fray. It's, It's easier to not get all the way into the middle of that. It's easier to run slower. That's human instinct. And there's people here that are high-capacity leaders. And what God's saying is, if you think the idea is to, to kind of keep your eyes down, don't make eye contact so that other people will do it, you can run a little slower, so that the rest of your life you've got all your energy to invest, then you don't really understand who these people are, called Antioch. Who these people are, as well as all the other churches in this town, They're God's flock. Now, sheep are an interesting, interesting creature because they only have like one defense mechanism. And you know what it is? Like dumb luck. Dumb luck. That's all they've got. It's dumb luck. Like a wolf's coming and they try to run and fall over like a cliff and maybe they don't die all the way. Like they're safe, okay? Um Maybe they're supposed to run that way and they're so dumb they run the other way and it just throws off, you know, a wolf or what. That's all they've got is dumb luck. That's all they've got. God's church is a needy, needy, helpless, dependent community of people. 
and God designed it so that he would call out high-capacity leaders and set them up so that they are going to run faster, they're going to devote themselves more so that they can guard and protect that flock that he cares about. Belongs to him. He values it. In Matthew, Jesus says, if, if you have a hundred sheep, a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what do you say as a shepherd? That's one less to worry about. <laughs> Sweet. Um, percentages just got better. Oh, that was a stupid sheep anyway. Got what was coming to him. Jesus says that, I mean, this is God's values here. He says, that shepherd is going to leave the 99 and go search for the one. And then he's going to beat the tar out of it. No. When he finds the one, he's going to embrace it, and he's going to be more happy to reclaim the one that was lost than he was about the 99 that just were in the pasture and were kind of safe and, and taking care of their business. God's plan is that high-capacity leaders would have a heart for his flock. That they would elevate this above a lot of other things that they can invest themselves in. And it's foolish in the eyes of the world. It's a bad investment of time. Unless you're thinking from an eternal perspective. And we're going to get to that part later. It's a bad investment unless you've got God's mind on this issue. We're going to see that later. So let me read that part again. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Now there's three kind of parallel phrases here, and we just tackled the first one, but he goes into the other two here, and I just want you to see that progression. The next one is this. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The greedy for money one, I just want to do away with that in one, in one fell swoop and basically say, the guy you see on the TV that makes you feel like he's a charlatan, probably he's a charlatan. I, I mean, I don't know. It depends on which guy we're talking about, but I think those guys on the TV, I've got it wrong. And there was guys like that in Peter's day, and they would travel to little communities, and they would set themselves up as the principal figure, and then they would have their needs in excess taken care of. But the idea wasn't, give me enough so that I can live. And if you give me more than that, I'm going to redistribute that wealth like Jesus did, right? Their whole idea is, man, this is a great use of my time. I can make more money doing this than, like, sewing tents or, like, building mud houses, or doing some other job. So I'm going to work this. There's a, there's, there's a type of person that's called ministry, and I've seen it now for over a decade. And that person is so eager to get in the game and to serve and to work and to labor that if it comes to money, it's like, just get me enough money so that my bills are, are taken care of, so that I, I, I can give the time, so that I'm freed up to minister. I don't care how much it is, just set me free to do what I'm dying to do. I want to run fast. And then there's another type of person that comes into ministry, and they're always lobbying and fighting for what they're worth and what they deserve and, and what they should earn. And, and their mindset is, this is a job, 
and, and I'm going into it because it needs to be lucrative to this certain point. And you can spot the difference. I've seen it for over a decade. And Peter, see, he likes these guys that, that aren't eager for money. They're just dying to run fast and get in the game. And you can see the difference. That third one says this. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Some people go after ministry positions for money. I'd say more people go after ministry positions for power. I've been in churches before where there was committees left and right. And man, people would throw elbows and lobby and politic just to get over a committee because then they've got power. And they can now control things. And that's not everybody, okay? But I've seen the people that were doing it that way. They, they never came into a meeting and, and led a prayer and said, God, give us humility with what we're doing. We have influence. We can either use it to bring you glory or to, to, to dishonor you. And, and help us use this power to serve people, to edify the church, to take care of the flock. God, just give us the wisdom to use this right. I, the wrong kind of person, I've never heard that kind of prayer. They come in, and the first thing they list are like the political enemies. These are the people that are against me. These are the people that are against us. These are the obstacles. These are the, 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 the other people that need to be neutralized. <laughs> and it starts that wonderful thing in church called politics that we all have seen and we all love and desire and have fond dreams of. There's a lot of people out there that, that crave positions of authority because they want power. And they don't have the character to go with it. And Peter says, those aren't the people you want. You want to find the person who's already running fast, who's already running hard, who already has the focus on God and taking care of the flock and not himself or herself. And you take those people, those are the people you get excited about. You find the ones that are examples not people that lord it over other people. You know, if you're faithful with a little, you're going to be faithful with a lot. I think a lot of people go into ministry and they say, if I became an official pastor or director or elder, if I, if I had that title, I would change my life and, and live as someone should live with that position. I mean, I've seen so many people, like they, they actually have that attitude. Well, of course, if I had that position, I would live differently. No, you get that position because you're already living differently. It's a completely upside-down way of doing things. And Jesus shows it to us. He shames the wise things of the world. And he grabs his tax collector and his fisherman guys and his zealot. And he grabs all these kind of wacky guys that no one else would grab. And he says, this is the kind of guy I'm going to mold to be my, my disciples, my leaders. I want people that, that have a certain heart and a certain disposition, a certain zeal, a certain passion, a certain teachability, and ultimately character. There's a fascinating quote that says this. We all want the testimony, but not many of us want the test. We all want the testimony, but not many of us want the test that turns into the testimony. We need to be examples of the flock. Again, if you're a parent even. Even. Like, if you're a parent, a coach, own your own business, 
Don't say to yourself, if I got some title someday, I would lead differently. There's biblical principles and values to how you lead right now and lead with excellence and out of the right heart and don't lead harshly. There's a movement kind of going that we're going to talk about in September in this church, kind of things that God is teaching us about church and leadership that really are revolutionary to me. I've not run into them anywhere else in in my decade of of being around churches. And it's basically a, a whole idea that decentralizing and really letting the body be the body with good leadership is so much better than creating an institution or a business where it's all top-down hierarchical leadership. The idea is top-down leadership delegates. You're, you're serving me because you're below me. You're in a different caste. And so I want something done. Here you go. Go do it. Bring it back to me. It's delegation, top-down leadership. Bottom-up leadership. Servant leadership, what Jesus was trying to coach his disciples to do, stands underneath people and it's like, I yearn for something to happen that's going to glorify God and it's got to involve these people if it's going to work. And so I'm, I'm working with these people by serving them and loving them and encouraging them and, and collaboratively we're going to work. I, I can't do it without these people. It's the body. Top-down leadership is delegation. Bottom-up leadership is collaboration. We would have never hit on this whole kind of groundbreaking thing with world relief if God hadn't been moving in our minds that you don't have big boundaries and say, our church, mine. Nobody else touch it. We don't want to talk to anyone else. It's only about us. We're not going to serve anyone else. We have really soft boundaries on the outside, and it allowed for us to strike up this partnership with a global relief organization because we don't care about getting the credit. We care about working and bringing glory to God. And so collaboration is what drives it. Does that make sense? Is that okay? Here's how it concludes. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We've been taught in the church that we should never act out of self-interest. If you do something in the church, do it out of duty because you're supposed to. Don't act out of self-interest. And that's completely wrong. It's unbiblical. You're not supposed to act out of indifference. (laughs) You're supposed to act out of like self-interest that there's no place I would rather be than with God, working with God in his will, bringing him glory and getting the joy. Delight. Let me say it again. Delight is what drives the Christian that really knows his God or her God. Not duty. And this is just one of many things. There's a promise here. Lead well, serve well, and you will get. And this thing you're going to get doesn't fade. Titles fade. Looks fade. Athletic ability fades. Money can go away. There's a lot of ways of getting glory that fade. What God promises is unfading. He says, get excited about it. When you labor with me, it is good. You can rejoice in it, desire it, delight in it. Last word on elders is this. Here's the thing about elders. I was like talking about it with my wife. And um, it's like, yeah, I'm talking about elders. And she's like, really? Is anyone going to care? And I was just like, oh, you're right. Like, you know, everyone's going to tune out except for like the eight elders maybe. I don't know. 
And I kind of realized something about elders. Um, elders are a lot like toilets. You take them for granted until they don't work. You take it for granted until something goes wrong. Um, ben Franklin said another way. He said, when the well doesn't work, we, we learn the value of water. And we don't value elders because we're running around going, um, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Jim Wilkins, Neil Cole, got his playing card, Elder of the Year. I mean, we don't go around worshiping elders. It's not like in our makeup. What we value, what gets us excited is what they produce, what they create, the harmony, the safety. There's no surprise to the metaphor that Peter uses, that of sheep and shepherds. I want to just turn back to Psalm 23 and just remind us of kind of some of these words. Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Because of him I lie down in green pastures. And then at the bottom it says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Out of all the qualifications for elders that are given in Titus and Tim, uh, in Timothy, etc., only one of them is skill-based, able to teach, able to lead, able to have influence. That one skill is the only skill. All the other things are character things. Why? Because a guy with skill can create a great atmosphere, help create a great church do wonderful things for a week or a month or a year or two years. But if he doesn't have character, if elders don't have character, it can't last. It's not consistent. It's not enduring. And it's important for these elders, these shepherds to come along and they've got character and they're going to run faster than everybody else. They've got the right motives. They've got the right mindset. And there they are. They are going to serve behind the scenes and there's no baseball cards and no one's going to go around like, you know, championing them. And they're going to do it because they love the flock and what they create, safety, harmony, peace, a place you can go and, and just enjoy or bring your family and know that there's security there. Nobody leaves a babysitter with their kids that's just all fun, but, but when the chips are down, when something goes wrong, or there's a threat to the children or something else, that babysitter can't handle it, can't endure, can't lead through it. No one's going to put that babysitter there. God wants character. To, to be there to shepherd his flock. I mean, it's, we know this at a felt level. We, we go look for a church, we dream of a church, and we dream of our kids growing up, going to the same family camp for 15 years, having those memories. We dream of kids being discipled. We dream of memories and of family and of enjoying it and having it be safe and and being able to embrace it and get excited about it and talk to people and champion that community. We want to be a part of a flock. We're herd creatures, all of us. And what's going to provide that for us over time? Our Our shepherds that have the high capacity to lead well and they have the character to do it, to do it right, and to sustain it. The beauty of Psalm 23 is this. 
It's the beauty of what Peter said too when he says, when the, the chief shepherd comes. See, every good shepherd also sees himself as a sheep. David was the king of Israel, the primary guy. <laughs> Such a big chunk of scripture talks about David. And here he writes this psalm, this poem, and he puts himself as the sheep. And you see, every good leader also sees himself as a follower, herself as a follower. Every shepherd must also realize they're the sheep and that they have to submit and learn from and be led by Christ. That's why in our values, we have four of them, commitments. The first one is Christ-centered because the chief shepherd is what drives this whole thing. It's what's what's at the center and makes it all go round. It's the name that we wear with honor. I'm a Christian, and I follow Christ. When we do baptisms in three weeks, it's, it's a lot of men and women being willing to look really silly and do something that there's no other category for in culture and to like publicly go into a very cold river and say, you know what, I'm a Christian and I follow Christ. He's my chief, chief shepherd. He's at the center. So commitment number one, we're Christ-centered. Let's not suffer for doing bad. Let's not run and try and figure out how we can just work the system as Christians in a very secular culture to get by with the least amount of scrapes. Let's get excited at who we are. Let's challenge ourselves to commitment and leadership and a heart and a desire that's willing to look at the church and say, this is God's flock. Let's not lead through delegation so it's all about me and power and control. Let's learn to work collaboratively and value and encourage other people. You know, we are in control in some sense of this community and how it goes over time. And guess what? You've got great elders at this church. We took advice when we planted the church and waited a long time before we appointed elders. If you want to know who they are, there's a picture directory at the book table. And you can get that. You can see who they are. But this church is grounded by a plurality of great elders. Rest in that. There's safety in that. It's God's plan. Let's pray. Father, um, do guard us from making mistakes. Do guard us from silly things because we're not perfect. But also let us just rejoice in your plans, the way you've designed things. Let us be challenged to step up and lead well, to not try and um, run slow or avoid responsibility, but to desire it. Give us pure hearts. Renew a right spirit within us. Give us a passion for the things that you're passionate about. We pray this in Christ's name.